What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. In this episode, I speak with Dr. April Burgoyne about operating room fires, how they can start, and how we can respond to them as anesthesia providers. This is episode 93 of Anesthesia Guidebook, and it was originally recorded and released on From the Head of the Bed four years ago in February of 2019. We recorded this show with a tabletop microphone, so the audio is a little suboptimal, but I'm sure you're still going to find this to be a very hot topic that will smolder in your memory for years to come after the key details become seared into your clinical practice. (laughs) Hopefully this podcast will really help you turn up the heat on your OR fire prevention practices. And now that we have almost all the puns put out, let me tell you about Dr. Burgoyne. Dr. Burgoyne completed her Master of Nursing Science and Doctorate of Nurse Anesthesia Practice at Virginia Commonwealth University. Prior to becoming a CRNA, she served for eight years as an active duty commissioned officer in the U.S. Army with experience as a critical care registered nurse and flight nurse with the 82nd Airborne Dust-Off Medevac team. She served two combat tours prior to transferring to the Army Reserves at the rank of major and then returned to school for her master's and doctorate degrees in anesthesia. Dr. Burgoyne had a case in which there was an OR fire, and we're going to discuss that story in detail in this podcast. She then is going to unpack OR and airway fires for us, including contributing factors, prevention, crisis management, and the importance of critical incident debriefing. Currently here in February of 2023, I have the incredible privilege of working closely with April to support our CRNA group at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. April is one of our two CRNA supervisors and an invaluable part of our CRNA leadership team. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from her on this topic and in an upcoming episode on the pathophysiology of vaping-associated lung injury. In the show notes to this episode, we have links to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation's infographics and video on OR fire prevention and safety, which are excellent resources to share with colleagues and your other classmates if you're still in anesthesia training. We also link to a resource called Anesthesia Anonymous, which is a website hosted by faculty from Virginia Commonwealth University's Nurse Anesthesia Program, April's alma mater. So this is a resource where providers and anesthesia learners can anonymously share and read real stories of near misses, medical errors, and other clinical experiences. It's been said that good judgment comes from bad judgment, and it's definitely better to learn from others' mistakes and bad judgment calls than having to make your own along the way. And this website, Anesthesia Anonymous, lets you do just that. It lets you see stories and mistakes and errors and near misses that other people have been a part of and experienced and then anonymously shared so that you can see you know, how these things uh, happen, how the situation, how the Swiss cheese, all the holes in the Swiss cheese model of risk management, how they lined up and an error found its way through all of the different safety mechanisms that we have in place in the operating room. So be sure to check out the links in the show notes to this podcast that Dr. Burgoyne has shared with us. And with that, let's get to the show. You had a case recently where there was an operating room fire at a clinical site. We're going to get into the details about that uh, in just a minute, but 
you also have like a specific interest in patient safety and human factors and kind of the teamwork, leadership, all that kind of stuff. So where, where does that come from? Tell us a little bit about that. So I think that comes a lot from the doctorate program that I did at VCU. There was a large focus on just patient safety and, um, you know, to err as human and how to kind of address those factors that are inevitable when humans are taking care of humans. So I've always found it very beneficial to share critical incidences, share um, information, education, and really have a cohesive team when you're working in order to try to provide your patient the highest quality of care. That's awesome. So, and so this case went down recently, and then uh, you brought this case to the anesthesia team uh, here at Maine Med and presented on OR fires in general recently, and I had the pleasure of hearing that talk. And so that's where uh, I got the idea to sit down and chat with you today. So I'm super excited about yeah, that. Thanks so for me. tell us a little bit about uh, what happened. So you were the CRNA on a case where there was no OR fire, but you weren't you weren't in the room at the time of the fire. Yeah. So un- walk us through what what was going on. What so, what kind of surgery was it, and, and what happened? Well, before I get to that, I just want to thank you for this opportunity, too, because I do have an interest in kind of putting information out there. And um, I talked in my original talk a lot about the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation and Anesthesia Anonymous, which is an online resource as well. Um, And then, of course, the closed claim projects, which most of us are familiar about. But this is another great opportunity to kind of get information out there and to have listeners hear the things that do happen in the OR and then be able to talk about how to prevent it, how to um, react, and how to have high-quality care. Yeah, absolutely. thank you for that. Well, thank you. Um, So this particular OR fire, I had actually left the room. I had another CRNA come in to give me a break, and I went up to the break room to have some water, and just as I sat down at the table, I heard code blue to my OR that I had just left. So I threw my water into the sink, and I ran downstairs wondering what was going on in the operating room. Because you had left and everything was fine. Yeah, everything. And, and what kind of case was it? Oh, yeah. So it was a, yeah, it was amputation. It was bilateral, though. We were doing a above-the-knee amputation on the right and then a transmetatarsal amputation on the left foot. So we were just about finished with the amputation on the right, and I was giving report and said, you know, we're just getting ready. We're going to kind of change gears and go over to the left side. They're starting to put the dressings on now. And that was the report. And from an anesthesia perspective, the patient was doing great. Um, Steady vital signs, not really requiring any pressors or anything. They had an LMA, an ET tube. The ET tube, um, just because of the length of the procedure. Okay. So I heard the code blue, and then I ran back down to try to figure out what was going on in the room. And when I walked in, I recognized that it was not a code blue, but it was actually an OR fire. That had, it was a surgical OR fire, so not airway. I I think in our practice we focus a lot more on airway fires and kind of have that algorithm and go through that with crisis resource management and. So this was a little bit different, and as I walked in, they were stomping the fire out on the floor, and the CRNA that had taken over for me said, never in my 20-something years have I seen an OR fire, so you can have your case back. Oh, man. (laughs) So um, 
she left, and by, I mean, everything was under control at that point. But there was a lot of um, things to follow up on. Right. And of course, the, the fire was being stomped out. And then from there, it was people just kind of flooding in, trying to find out what was going on. Is it a code blue? Is it a code red? Who do we need to notify? Was the fire department notified? And did we take the proper protocols and procedures at right. that point? Um, the patient was safe. The fire was put out. But we can talk about how that Yeah, let's went talk. About. So what what started this fire? You walk in and they're stamping something out on the floor yeah. and then you get filled in at some point as to what happened. So right. so what what started the fire? So um, it was an attending surgeon and a resident and there was two techs, one in training and one senior surgical tech. And they were like I said, they were just finishing up on the right amputation. So the wound, they were they were closing the wound and I think they were getting ready to get the mast saw. Is they were well, they're getting ready to put the wound back on. So in order to get the wound back, the nurse in the room, the circulating nurse, had to get all the supplies and gather the supplies. And while they were kind of waiting for those supplies to come, they noticed that um, there was a healthy bleeder on the on the wound. And so the attending grabbed the cautery to cauterize the healthy bleeding tissue at that point. Yep. And just as she was doing that, the surgical tech handed the resident a bin of mastosol with a sponge stick, which okay. is kind of like a four by four yep. in, on tongs or inside tongs. And they dipped that mastosol, dip that in mastosol, and then put it on to apply the dressing. And so as that resident brought the tub of mastosol over, just the fumes alone of the mastosol caught fire because the cautery was being used. The oh, wow. The was being used um, on the surgical field. So the fumes catch fire. The fumes catch fire, which then caused the sponge stick to catch fire. That someone's holding with yes. tongs. So it turns so into a, a torch. You have a flaming sponge <laughs> flaming stick. Flaming sponge stick. And at that time, the um, drapes had caught fire a little bit because there was a little yeah. mastosol around or I guess the mastosol had like dripped onto the fields and then the drapes caught. But that was um, quickly extinguished. But then we had this flaming torch, which is what I walked into them stomping out. So they okay. had put the, okay. on the floor was like the first instinct and then to um, stomp it out. Which in hindsight, if you think about it, it's not the ideal way to put an OR fire out but also not passing judgment on how it was put out. It yeah, people insane. just and like react in the moment, I, yeah. wish, I would assume. Yeah, so, but it is sticky. That's the point of mastosol, and um, there had um, booties on. So as you're like stomping out mastosol with shoe covers on, and it's sticky and there's a fire, it doesn't go out very easily because you kind of yeah. have this. Yeah, um, oh man. So... Um, but it did. It did end up being extinguished. And at one point, they grabbed the fire blanket that was on the wall. Yep. And they put that on the drapes um, to put out the fire that was like on the drapes or to ensure and that... The dra and the drapes are still on the patient. The drapes are still on the patient. Yep. And they did that to ensure that like nothing re-caught and that, they, yep. you know, it kind of diminishes the oxygen below the fire blanket. And that someone had kind of crawled under there and made sure the fire was out and looked under. A brave soul. Like, yes, a brave soul did crawl under there, and there was no fire. Um, but later learning that 
you know, a fire blanket should never go on a patient. So the drapes should have automatically been taken off, put on the floor, and then the fire blanket goes on the floor. Yeah, that's a good point. Because so, the fire could potentially continue to burn mm-hmm. under the fire blanket on the patient until all that oxygen was consumed. Right, exactly. Yeah. So... In this case, it ended up working and the fire was extinguished and luckily the fire that was on the drapes on the patient was not as much of an issue as the sponge stick torch had yeah. turned into. Right, right, exactly. So let's let's sound off on this case. So the fire gets extinguished uh, and then you said there were a lot of learning points and things to review. What happened with the patient specifically? Did this was the surgery over? Did the patient uh, was the patient harmed? Uh, what what kind of happened after the fire got put out? So after the fire got put out, um, the fire department did come. So the code blue did turn into a code red. The fire alarm was pulled, and the department came and. They took everything that was burned. Yep. So they took the drapes that were burned, anything that had caught on fire, they took. The patient was, ha, did have a small superficial burn around their wound site. Um, and we, we did tell the patient afterwards. Yep. Um, but for the most part, there wasn't any detrimental. Um, so surgery concluded as planned yes. with the wound back and yes they put the wound back on and then continued they um took all the drapes off and then redressed and redraped the okay. left leg to continue the surgery okay okay but i think that is an interesting point because of course everybody is kind of riled up at that point and a little shaken up and you right. have to continue on and get past that moment uh, and that's what I walked into because I wasn't necessarily in the room, right. but you could see just how it took people off guard. Like, right. I think you do talk about our fires, we talk about them, it's been a hot topic, but whether it's actually going to happen in your OR, I don't think that people know the magnitude of how that can affect everyone in the room, including yeah. the patient. And so just trying to get past that, like talk through it a little bit, make sure that, you know, the patient is safe. The um, everyone in the OR, all your, all your co-workers, yourself, are safe. Um, and from an anesthesia perspective, it was different because we weren't really involved. I mean, the CRNA that I took over for, her immediate reaction was just to go to room air. So yep. we did go to room air, but it was a, a stable situation right. from an anesthetic right, perspective. Right, right. So at that point, it's like, how can I help the rest of the team to you know, move forward with the surgery and carry out proper protocol. And and how did you find yourself doing that? So, at this point, I just found like talking pe- talking to people and kind of moving forward. Like, let's not focus. Like we we did everything correctly. The fire's out. Everybody is safe. Let's move on and continue um, for the patient. I think something that I could have done to be more helpful is to actually call the number and report a code red. Because you, in your talk with the local anesthesia group, you had mentioned that, that the first reaction, we have code blue buttons in the OR, so someone just hit a code blue button. Right. But really it wasn't a code blue, it was a code red, and that requires a telephone call. And so there was some delay in actually activating the code red, which gets a whole different set of people, including the fire department, involved in managing that situation. Right, and so knowing where the fire pull station is, because that's right. the other way, is right. to... But there's not a pull station in the OR. So 
it, the code blue button was pushed, and as people arrived, it was said that there was a fire. And then from there, the whole station was pulled. And that's actually how the code red okay. developed. Um, but that, and it wasn't delayed by a lot, but it was definitely, I mean, I could have called and kind of reported yeah, yeah. more detail on that um, hotline. I don't know that it would have sped things up drastically, yeah. but, um, and at that point, the fire was out. So it's just food for thought if the fire had not gone out or if it had turned into a bigger deal. Because right. then you really, you really do need the fire department there right away. And it is important to know where your pool stations are, where your fire extinguishers are, right. where the fire hoses are. Was a fire extinguisher used in this case? No. It, it didn't need to be used? It didn't need to okay. be used. Okay, okay, okay. Well, let's shift gears and talk about it from more of a, like a, the theoretical standpoint on OR fires. So when you talk about OR fires, how do you get there? How do you get an OR fire? Like there's some, there's like this... Uh, fire triad thing. So walk us through that a little bit. What do you need to have in place to get an OR fire going? Yeah, so the famous fire triad is made up of three things. It's oxidizers, fuels, and ignition sources. And so we kind of touched on oxidizers um, before. And in the OR, especially from an anesthesia perspective, the two that we use the most are going to be oxygen and nitrous. So those are actually the oxidizers that help to create the flame. Yeah, so this was like an interesting point, right? Mm -hmm. Because we think about oxygen being combustible in and of itself, or nitrous as flammable, but as an oxidizer, both of those things are oxidizers. Those mm -hmm. things accelerate a fire. Mm -hmm. They are not actually consumed. They're not actually the fuel, right. but they accelerate the fire once it is caught, or they need to be present for the fire to to get going and to get up to speed, which is why higher concentrations of really either oxygen or nitrous are so dangerous. Right. But you need these other elements too. Yes, yeah, so the fuel is like the drapes, the towels, the sponge sticks, the gauze, the mastosol. The pool of chlorhexidine that didn't dry yes. after prep. Yes, um, hair or alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Right. That's gonna be like fuel things that are commonly found in the operating room. And then ignition sources are electrosurgical cautery, uh, lasers, fiber optic lights are sometimes resting on the drapes. Those get very hot right. and can also um, cause an ignition. In, in talking about this, the, the light box, someone uh, who heard of this case was describing a case that they walked into, or they, they were providing anesthesia in already, and the surgeon walked in, had his light source on, like his headlamp on, mm -hmm. so it wasn't plugged in yet, so the light box was on, surgeon dries his hands, tosses the towel on the light box, and they said literally within like five seconds, the towel caught on fire, because the beam of light coming out of that light box is so hot wow. that it just yeah. caught on fire. And I've, I've heard multiple cases of um, like the, the scopes or the lasers just set down and resting. And right. The same type of thing, they get so hot. The tip of those are very, very hot. Mm -hmm. So it's super, super important to keep those off of uh, drapes or towels or, and whatnot. So, so cool. So in review, you've got oxidizers, which are oxygen and nitrous oxide. You've got fuel sources, which we talked about, and then the ignition source. So that's the classic fire triad. Are there particular surgeries that put patients more at risk 
for fires? Or where, where are some of the most common surgeries where you see fires? Yep, anything with an open oxygen source. So if you're delivering oxygen just via a face mask or a nasal cannula, um, if you're using an ignition source, so if you are using like a bovi or electrocautery of some sort or laser, and then surgery at chest level or higher um, are the high risk, the three things that are going to make them high risk. The APSF um, Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation has a really good video online about fire safety, and they also talk about high risk cases. Cool. So it's a so it's a free um, it's like a free eighteen minute video you can access. Yeah. I think if you just Google Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation or APSF fire video, it should pop right up. So. Yeah, and it's it's actually a really good quick synopsis um, for. All providers really cool yeah and we'll put it we'll put a link to that video on the website on in the show notes for this episode so uh, so April what are the what are some ways that we can reduce the risk of fire so I think that it's it's something that everyone needs to be aware of it's one of those high risk low volume situations that's talked about but not always honed in on what the actual protocols are there's a lot of drills at most facilities to help facilitate that thought process. And so first thing is just being aware and uh, recognizing that they do happen and what steps would you take. So if you're in the OR just hanging out, you could say, if there was a fire right now, what would we do? Um, the simulation is really good. Crisis resource management and simulation for all providers would be ideal. That being said, there are things such as, uh, as you alluded to before, like just chlorhexidine drying times. Yeah. Using the right chlorhexidine amount per body space. Which, so that's interesting, right? You're talking about like the size of the chlorhexidine container or stick or whatever. Exactly, because the drying time of three minutes is not only for the antibacterial properties, which I think is also kind of that OR sterility mindset right. is it needs to be three minutes to have its antibacterial properties, but it's really three minutes to prevent fires as well because it needs to be dry before they can use any type of um, cautery. Right, or, right. Yeah, that's a great point. Or ignition source. Right. Um, so things like that. And then adjusting the FiO2 uh, as far as from our perspective, if they are working in the airway or... There is uh, open oxygen source and then nearby cautery to decrease your FiO2 and try to minimize. Uh, flash fire is less likely to happen if it's less than 30% right. FiO2. Right. Um, some say it will not happen if less than 30% FiO2. And I think it's important to... Also mention that if you have just turned your FiO2 down, it does take some time for that 100% to dissipate out of the area. Yeah, so. yeah. But that's a good point, that it's not instantaneous. It's not instant. Yeah, so you have to allow time for it to dissipate and yeah. get down to the FiO2 that you're actually planning for. So in your talk, you mentioned some interesting ideas about how to titrate FiO2 when you're doing an open source um, supplemental oxygen delivery. Like if you're using a nasal cannula, tell us a little bit about that. So I think it's important to also think about do you need supplemental oxygen? So yeah. we put supplemental oxygen on all our patients. If it's an ASA1 healthy patient, you're doing light sedation or a MAC case 
within with cautery near the face do you really need to use supplemental oxygen? Um, I think we just automatically put it on no matter what, but if they'll tolerate without it or try tolerating without it and then you have it right there in case you need it, yeah. um, that's reasonable. The other way is with most nasal cannulas now, there's an adapter piece that fits on to your anesthesia circuit, to the Y piece. And you can actually use that adapter. You put the adapter on the anesthesia circuit and then you plug in the end of the nasal cannula that you would normally plug into the auxiliary outlet right, right onto that adapter piece. Right. And then you can actually use the dials on your anesthesia machine to, you can use air from your anesthesia machine, so you have that, or you can do a mixture. Um, you could technically use nitrous with that as well. Uh, it's important to remember to close the APL valve if you actually want to get a reading on your anesthesia machine of what your end tidal Interesting. is. Yeah. And then as far as the the end tidal CO2, you would use the same end, the connector from the nasal cannula. Right. It's kind right. of hard to yep. explain without a picture. But yep. So, so let's unpack it. So you got a nasal cannula. It's got yep. an entitled CO2 sampling line. Connect yep. that like normal to your entitled CO2 sampler. Yep. Then you're saying take the connection point that you would typically hook onto the auxiliary O2 outlet. Yes. That thing is just shooting out 100% O2. There's no way to titrate that down. Right. It's either on or off. Mm -hmm. Higher, higher flow or lower flow. Take that thing off the auxiliary port. And then in most of those... Uh, nasal cannula packets, there's an adapter, there's a reducer that yep. will fit onto the Y piece. So like take the mask off your circuit, yes. put the reducer where the mask or the elbow would go, mm -hmm. and then connect your nasal cannula onto the tip of that. Yes. Then you can play with your real anesthesia machine dials exactly. and you got O2 air nitrous readily available and you mentioned close the APL valve and you'll actually get readings on what you're delivering. Right. Yeah. So That's awesome. And, it, and it's, a, it's a good alternative. It's, I mean, I think most of us just kind of toss those adapters or they fall on the floor. Yeah. Um, there's also an air oxygen blender, but it's not commonly found in the operating room. It can be found uh, throughout hospitals, but I haven't seen one in a couple other things that people do or have mentioned doing as well is you can, if you are using a nasal cannula hooked up to 100% through the auxiliary outlet, you could put like a suction tubing underneath the drape if their face is covered just to try to get like dissipate some of that oxygen instead of creating a pocket yeah so you're actually scavenging the right. little pool or tint of oxygen away as you're trying to bring room air into that yeah zone. you just wash yeah, that out because otherwise there's yeah. that pocket's there and if something were to ignite I think an interesting point too, uh, based on what you just said about, do they need an FiO2 of over 30%? Some of our patients, yeah, they do. And so right. there's that decision-making there of saying, you know, in a typical patient, I would use a nasal cannula or titrate down uh, the FiO2 below 30%. I'd see how they fly. But if they're not able to tolerate that, they're morbidly obese, they have COPD, they have asthma, they have any reason why they can't tolerate that. That's a decision point to then go to a closed source, put an LMA in, put an ET tube in. Exactly. Yes, so if you have to use over 30% and you have one of these high-risk cases and cautery is going to be close to the face or the head, then I would definitely suggest putting an LMA or an ET tube just to mitigate the risk yeah. of fire. If the procedure is down the chest far enough that they can use, or you could do an open draping style and actually have the patient's head completely exposed on one side of the drape rather than tenting over, That's that correct. also would help prevent like pocketing of oxygen in that yep. space.
Excellent. Let's go through airway fire. Okay. That's that's an especially hot topic. Mm -hmm. What are the steps to manage an airway fire? Because I think this is one of those things that you hear about, perhaps, but you don't. It's so low incident that when it goes down, I can see a lot of people just stepping back and being like, "Whoa." Right. You don't have your like checklist. That that's right. And you need clear. and you need to take some action like right now. Right. So what do you do? So I think the first thing to remember is just to say fire or code red to alert everybody in the room. And you can do that at the same time as you're doing these next few yep. steps. You want to remove whatever is on fire. So if the LMA or the ET tube is on fire, you want to remove that source. And on that same note, you want to disconnect the oxygen source. So that as you're pulling the LMA or the ET tube out, there's not still a um, exuberant flame at the end of that that's going to also Because with burn. flowing oxygen as the oxidizer or nitrous, I mean, that mm -hmm. really becomes like a blowtorch. Right. Yeah, there's some um, pretty astonishing videos on it that won't really leave your mind once you see them. Right. You can see the difference as to if there is that oxidizer there or not. So there's multiple ways you can do that. You can reach over and turn your oxygen off, or you could just disconnect the circuit as you go to pull to your um, airway device. So you pull out your airway device after disconnecting the oxygen source or turning it off, and then you want to um, put saline down into the airway, down um, just to make sure that there's nothing burning any longer, and then reestablish ventilation. Like how much saline are you talking about? Well, I guess it depends on how big the fire is, but I would, if you have removed the fire and removed the airway um, device, you're really just pouring it. To get it out. To get, yeah. yeah just pour until it's extinguished. Pour until it's extinguished and then suction. Um, so then ventilate the patient, uh, usually just bag valve mask or um, using manual ventilation on the machine and re-secure the airway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, during laryngoscopy to check to see if you got all the bits and pieces out, you know, yeah. to look at your tube when you pull it out, is the tube intact or did only half of your tube come out, then you will likely need to retrieve the melted off part out right. of the airway. So, you, so yes, and bronchoscopy is recommended after yeah. you have established the airway. And that is something to consider when you asked how much water to pour, like, is your device completely out? Do you, is yeah, there yeah. something else in the airway? Was there packing in there that could be on fire and come out as well? So you really have to be meticulous in your airway assessment as you go through these steps. Yeah. Save all the stuff from the airway fire, yes. right? It needs Save to get evaluated. Mm -hmm. Like the burnt ET tube and all that kind of stuff needs to get... Yep, and you up. would still alert the same... Um, so if you think about it, mo all of these steps, whether it's an airway fire or a surgical fire, are very similar. Um, you would still alert a code red and the fire department still be, needs to be notified. And that's kind of part of that number one, like say there's a fire and then from there your teamwork comes in and you do these next steps to the airway. Uh, it was interesting because the question came up, if you're doing an ENT surgery, sometimes the bed is turned 90 degrees. So we're kind of trained in this like methodical, this is what you do, make sure you pull it. So if your surgeon is up there and they all of a sudden just like step back and say fire, what do you do then if they're, they're uh, you know, 180 degrees from you? Um, is it your job to pull it? Is it their job to pull it? What do you, do you need to tell them to pull it? So again, communication and being aware of the room setup and 
where's the saline, where's the water? And that's something we didn't really talk about with the um, surgical fire that I was kind of involved in or not involved in and walked into. Right. There was a bowl of, of saline there that um, was probably underutilized in the case. Interesting. Yeah. Because that sponge stick could have just gone in yeah. the water. I know some CRNAs will keep like a bottle of saline filled mm-hmm. on the anesthesia machine during ENT cases and that kind of stuff. So they, they have that rapidly available. I've also heard folks, you know, they're banking on their IV fluids as being a very rapid source of saline or LR or whatever. It doesn't really matter right. what the electrolyte concentration is. You know, just right. pull the tubing off and squirt it in mm-hmm. the airway or on the fire. Yeah, I mean, most of the time the ba- the there is a back basin of water, saline, that the surgical techs have, too. And so if you don't have something readily available, usually they do. And, again, that teamwork comes into play where if they have a fire, you can always kind of remind them, like, hey, there is saline right there, or dump the water on the fire, or put the sponge stick in, or whatever is burning. So um, it's kind of one of those things that we think about, and we are trained in... uh, like one, two, three, four format, but it not, doesn't always go that way. Well, it's chaotic. And, yeah. And people, I mean, there's there's a, I, I, it's very interesting to chat with students about, you know, airway fires and what are your steps and what are you going to do? And sometimes they're thinking on recall, they'll become paralyzed and say, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Like, do I, do I pull the tube out first or do I turn the O2 off first? Right. You know, correct answer, you do both kind of simultaneously. But in the moment, I think the, the important thing to do is to act. Is, yeah. to, is to do something, is to take re-control of the airway. Like you said, if the bed's turned 180, you know, shut the O2 off, have the surgeon pull it. You know, if they're incapacitated by shock or mm-hmm. fear or stunned or whatever. Or if they got burned. Like, yeah, if they're attending to their own situation, you have you own that airway. You own that patient. So mm-hmm. get them spun around and continue to manage them. Right. Yeah. Well, anything else that you want to sound off on or points that you want folks to, to go home with on OR fires or airway fires? I, I mean, I think we did a really good job hitting on the, the topics and um, going through the steps and kind of talking about the, the what-ifs as far as, you know, we can follow these steps and then in the heat of the moment, you won't necessarily remember those. Or <laughs> um, oh, but I man. do think it's important... One thing I do want to hit on is critical incident sharing. I mean, that is an electrifying topic. Isn't so, it? yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was burning to ask you about that. So, <laughs> go ahead. All right. So, um, I think it's important to talk about critical incidents as a whole. Uh, anybody on the team uh, should be encouraged to talk about any type of sentinel event or critical incident that they've been a part of, because other people can learn from that. And I right. think we often learn from that best. When you can sit down and dialogue on something and kind of say, well, what if this happened? Or what if that happened? Or um, turn the scenario around to know if you were in a different situation, what different actions you would take. And it's not to pass any judgment on anyone who's involved, but it's just to learn from each other and continuously work to provide safer care for our patients. So I think we have to remember when we're talking about these things, it's not like this person did something wrong. Right. It's remarkable how many things are system issues. Um, it's interesting, you know, you try to build safety into your systems and into your habits and into the way that you do things uh, to help prevent these errors. And 
And I agree with you. It's very important to talk about, to, to create a just culture in, in a culture of safety where folks can chat about um, errors and mistakes free of judgment in, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can all get better. Right. I think that people are hesitant to share stories or share um, potential safety. Yeah, mistakes, near mistakes. misses, right. whatever they might be. But in doing so, you may that story may be the link for someone else to take a preventative step that saves a patient from harm in the future. Yeah, it, just, it basically just raises awareness throughout. So, I, and, and that is more where my focus is when talking about these critical incidents. That's great. I mean, I think that fire safety is a hot topic, and um, I learned a lot from this scenario and kind of dissecting it down and I'm happy to be able to share that. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. But I also want to kind of hone in again on the fact that critical incident sharing is important and there are multiple avenues to do that. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned a couple of those at, the, at this top of the talk, which we'll uh, link to in the show notes, but the close claims analysis. Yeah. And then you mentioned this thing, uh, anesthesia Anonymous, right? Anonymous. Anonymous. And what is that? It's actually put on, it was created by Virginia Commonwealth University um, faculty. And it is just a website, basically, if you are a CRNA, and I believe SRNAs can also um, gain a membership. And you just request a membership, and then you can share stories, critical incidences, and read them as yeah. well. So. Um, by going on there, it's really just a safe place that's judgment-free that you can learn from um, other providers and also teach other providers. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, Which not every online format is judgment-free. Right. As we know. So, yeah, that's great that they moderate that in some way to where it's a safe space. Yeah. Cool. Well, April, thank you so much for being here today. It's been really fun to chat with you. Thanks. Yeah, you as well. I appreciate the offer and my first podcast. So I and appreciate it. probably not your last. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hey, y'all. John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcast? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much. And I'll see you next time.